Okay, uh, I need you to take out a piece of paper and a pen. Remember, from one to five, a little pop quiz. I was a teacher long ago, and I loved <laughs> giving pop quizzes. I know that it's at the end of the year for high school students, and so I know you guys are you're tired, and I know college students, you just finished your finals. So I'm going to make this as easy as I possibly can, all right? As easy as I can. One to five, so every question is going to be worth 20 points. This is heavy. Don't miss any. Can't afford to miss any. And uh, we'll see how this goes. Didn't go well the first service, so I'm going to give it one more shot. Okay, here we go. Question number one. How long did the Hundred Years' War last? How long did the Hundred Years' War last? You ready? Some of you type A's are a little nervous. Just relax. The answer is 116 Years. Oh, I know. 1337 to 1453. Okay? Anyone get that right? Good job. Good job. One person got that right. Can't afford to miss many more. All right, number two. What is a camel's hair brush made out of? Got you thinking a little bit. I know. Could be tricky. Could be a trick question. Actually, the answer is, it is made from a squirrel's tail. Yes, I'm serious. You can Google it. Look it up. By the way, do not Google these. We had people last night Googling these. It's not part of the deal. Okay, here's one. Here's number three. Anyone get that right? Ohio State University. At Ohio State Education, you learn a lot there, don't you? Okay, number three. (laughs) Number three, the Canary Islands in the Atlantic. I had Pacific, but I changed it when someone corrected me. Atlantic are named after what animal? The Canary Islands in the Atlantic named after what animal? You guys don't seem to be participating with me anymore. (laughs) Jamie, you know? Jamie's not going to give any. Okay, here we go. It is, and the Latin name is the Insularia Canaria, Island of the Dogs. You learned something. You learned something. Anyone get that right? Ohio State University. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Number four, and we only have two more. That's the good news. Number four, what was King George VI first name? King George VI, what was his first name? Jennifer, you're looking way too serious. <laughs> Zeb and Tom and Dave, just get people relaxed there. People are way too serious on this thing, all right? King George VI, first name, his name, first name was Albert. When he came to the throne in 1936, he respected the wish of Queen Victoria that no future king should ever be called Albert. Okay, one more. One more. That should make everybody happy. Ready? One more. How long did the 30 years war last? How long did the 30 years war last? You ready? 30 years. 1618 to 1648. Okay, that was a lot of fun, uh, wasn't it? Anyone get one or more right? 
Oklahoma, Ohio State, yeah, I know. Okay, okay, good job, good job. So sometimes we take these tests in life. Some are easy, some are tricky, some are just silly. Some actually determine a final grade. But the tests God gives are not on paper. They're never written exams. They're never, you never take them online. The tests that, that, that God gives come in, in the lab of life. They are in real time. They are in real life. And we're going to look at one of those tests today. Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 22. We're going to consider an extreme test that God gave Abraham. We've been following Abraham through the book of Genesis. The this, this study of Genesis is a foundational book for us to understand the rest of Scripture. Genesis chapter 22 Abraham, you remember he and Sarah last time had a long-expected child that they had been waiting for. Sarah was 90 years old. Abraham was 100 years old. God promised them that child, that he was going to send a great nation through that child. And he also waited until it could only be him who made it happen, a miracle from God. So they had the child. And uh, the child's name was named Isaac. He laughs. That name means uh, first of doubts, they laughed, and then of great joy. So here we see in Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 and 2, that some time later, God tested Abraham. Let's just stop there. We don't know how long it had been since uh, Isaac had been born. Later, we'll see that the name that's used to describe Isaac could be uh, anywhere from like 13 to 18 years old. So we don't know. So at least a decade has gone by. We're going to say 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 years after Isaac has been born. God tested, sometime later, God tested Abraham. Now again, we got to stop there and talk about that because what's it mean for God to test someone? Does God test people? It says here he does, but how do, we, how do we square that up? Three things about testing. We need to understand testing. Number one, we got to understand that a test is not a temptation. A test is not a temptation. Uh, James chapter 1, verse 13, when tempted, James says, No one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. So the source of temptation is going to come from one of two places. It's going to come from us, our own evil desires. We want something that we can't have. We don't want to do something that we're supposed to do. Remember, when we become a Christian, the penalty of sin is done away with, but the propensity to sin still remains in us. Sin is not eradicated from us. The sin nature is not eradicated. That's the, that's the struggle. That's the growth of the Christian life. Sometimes we just want things from our own flesh. That's one source of temptation. The other source of temptation is Satan himself. Satan wants us to fall. He wants you, who you go to your business, you go to the school, you go to in your neighborhood, and you say, I'm a believer. Satan wants you to fall. And the harder, the better. Secondly, tests are not temptation. Secondly, tests come in the form of trials. Trials are those outside things that come into our life. So, it could be an illness. You're not feeling well. You go to the doctor. They run some tests. You get a phone call, and it's not the news you want to hear. A trial now is on your life. 
uh, a challenge uh, of a job. You, 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 you go to work and, and you find out your position has been eliminated. Those things come at us. And, and trials are always used to test our faith and to grow our faith. James chapter 1, verses 2, and two through 4 say that the, the testing of your faith, these trials are testings of your faith that produce what? Perseverance. They help us to grow. There's a third type of test, and that's the one we see in Genesis 22:1. That test is a test of obedience. Sometimes God says, you know, you call yourself a Christian. You, you say you want to follow me. You say you love me. You say, you know, you are so appreciative of everything I've done on the cross. And Jesus says, really? You, you, you know, you go to a Bible church. You believe the Bible to be true. You read the Bible on a regular basis. You hear what it says. Are, are, sometimes God says, are you, really will, are, are you really willing to do everything it says? Tests of obedience. That's what happens to Abraham here in Genesis 22. And Abraham gets an extreme an unimaginable test. Chapter uh, 22, verse 1, sometimes later, God tested Abraham, a test of obedience. He said to Abraham, he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. And then God said, Abraham, here's what I want you to do. Here's my test of obedience for you. I want you to take your son, your only son, God's just drilling down on this, the son you love, whom you love, Isaac, his name's Isaac, can go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain. I'm going to show you. Let's make sure we understand where the place is. Uh, the region of Moriah is in Jerusalem. At this time, it's not Jerusalem. Abraham's just in uh, the area of Canaan. Go to the region of Moriah and go to the mountain, I'm going to show you. Later on in 2 Samuel, uh, David, after he commits a great sin, is going to go sacrifice at, at a place. He wants to build an altar and sacrifice. And see, he buys a threshing floor, remember the story, from a Jebusite. And the Jebusite says, I'll just give it to you. I mean, you're the, you're the king. David says, no, I'm not, going to, I'm not going to sacrifice something that costs me nothing. He buys the threshing floor. He, uh, he sets up the altar. He sacrifices to God. Later on, Solomon builds his temple right on Mount Moriah. The temple is right there on Mount Moriah. And then anyone know uh, what's on Mount Moriah today? You can look at this picture behind me. The Dome of the Rock sets right where Mount Moriah is. The the, the Muslims believe that Muhammad ascended to heaven uh, from the dome, the, the rock, Mount Moriah. So in AD 691, they built this structure that you see. So, so this story happens at the place where David built the altar, where Solomon built the temple, and where the dome of the rock is today. And then God gives... At that place, Abraham, this unbelievable assignment. Sacrifice your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Sacrifice him as a burnt offering on the mountain. 
that I will show you. Now you remember Abraham had another son. He had a son named Ishmael through Hagar, Sarah's maidservant. Hagar was tired of waiting on God. She took matters in her own hands. She gave uh, her, her maidservant to Abraham, and Abraham uh, didn't waste any time, and they had a child, Ishmael. After Isaac was born, now some years have gone by, as you can imagine, Ishmael and Isaac interact together, and there's a lot of tension. Remember, Sarah did not appreciate Hagar, even though Hagar had done what she asked her to do. So one day, they are, they're playing together, and it says that, Scripture says that, that Ishmael was mocking Isaac. That word in Hebrew is a broad word, so we don't know exactly what it means. But we know that some, in some way or another, and again, there's some history of tension here, in some way or another, uh, Sarah was convinced that Ishmael now was a threat to the son of promise, Isaac. So she says, get rid of her and get rid of the son. I don't want him in my house. I don't want him here. Chapter 21, verse 11, the, this matter distressed Abraham because it concerned his son, Ishmael. But God said to him, do not be distressed about the boy, your maidservant. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Remember that. It's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the maidservant into a great nation also because he is your offspring. And so God believed there was a threat there as well. He sends Hagar away. God protects Hagar and watches over her and provides her water in the desert. She actually goes back to Egypt, and she, or we know that she gets a wife for Ishmael from Egypt, her home country. And again, we'll, we'll see the Arab nation that uh, comes from Ishmael and the Israelites, the challenges that they have throughout history. But here, God says, now you got one son left. You send Ishmael away. So take that one son, that only son, that son of promise, sacrifice him as a burnt off. Just an unimaginable assignment. It's as if God is acting completely out of character. He's not only asking him to put his son to death, but he's asking him to do the same thing that the Canaanite people do. They did child sacrifice. It seems like God's retreating on his person. It seems like he's retreating on his promise to make Abraham into a great nation. Unthinkable. As we go through this story, um, this only happened one time in Scripture. So God's not going to ask you to sacrifice your child. But we're also looking for transferable principles, right? Truths that transcend from the Old Testament to the New. And the first one we see in the story is this. God will test us to see if we're willing to give Him our best. God will test us to see if we are willing to give Him our best. Now let's just be honest and blunt, okay? You know of many Christians who treat their faith more like a hobby than a commitment, don't you? And if you would 
as one person said, put them on trial for their Christianity, there wouldn't be enough evidence to convict them. They look more like the world than Christ. They live more like the world than Christ. Sometimes God comes to us and says, look, are you in or out? You going to obey me or not? What are you willing to sacrifice for me? What are you willing to give up for me? You, you cannot read Scripture without seeing that obedience is a, a radical practice. It's not normal. It's not what we normally do. We normally want to do our own thing. But obedience is radical. Obedience is extreme. And we see that throughout the teaching of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 10, 37 through 39. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Now, it's not that you're not supposed to love your mother and father, but more than Christ, Jesus is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life here will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Just a few uh, chapters down, Matthew 16, Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever wants to lose, whoever loses their life for me will, will find it. And then he adds in chapter 16, what good is it for someone to gain the entire world yet forfeit their soul? A few chapters down, Matthew 22. One of them, and an expert in the law, tested him with this question, Teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, remember, he goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And God knew if Abraham would be willing to give up his son, he had his heart and his soul and his mind. One commentator says it like this, The demand to sacrifice his son after the manner of the Canaanites was indeed only made to prove that Abraham was not behind the heathen in their self-denying surrender of his dearest to God. Radical obedience. This son that brought great joy, son of the promise, God says, I want you to sacrifice him. Here's the second lesson we learned through this story. God tests us to see if we're willing to trust Him. Are we willing to put our trust in Him? That's the question. Look at chapter 22, verse 3. We'll see what Abraham does. Early the next morning, Abraham <clears throat> got up and he saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance. And he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Don't miss the pronoun we. We have no idea what was going on in Abraham's mind. But somehow he is confident because of God's promises that whatever happens on that mountain, he's going to return with Isaac. We're going to come back to you. 
The writer of the Hebrews says it this way. Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Remember, Ishmael's going away, but don't worry about that. Isaac, that's the person that your offspring's going to be reckoned through. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Abraham said, we're going to go. I don't know what's going to happen up there. I know, the, I know this command, this instruction. But we're going to come back. Look at verse 11. We'll start at verse 9. When they reached the place that God told them about, Abraham built an altar and there and arranged the wood. He arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac. Now remember Isaac, his dad's like 113, right? So he's a young strapping boy. He could have taken his dad. But he, he, uh, he surrenders. Build an altar, he arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and he laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then he reached out his hand, and he took the knife to slay his son. Now, at that point, you almost have to turn your mind off of the story, don't you? He took up his knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him. Now I know, now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Son, now I know the test of obedience has been passed. Some things God's never going to ask us to do. This is not normative in Scripture. This is a one-time event. God's intention was never to have Isaac put to death, although Abraham didn't know that. You see, the deal with tests of obedience, we don't know how they're going to turn out. We, We don't get to see the whole story like we do now in the story of Abraham. But sometimes God will ask us to do some radical things that may not seem natural to us. And the question is, will we obey? Let me talk to parents for just a second. Your children belong to God, right? Our children belong to God. Are you willing to let him have them? Are you willing to let him use them for his purposes in their life? You know, I believe there are many Christian parents who are more concerned that their children are successful in this world, this short little stint we have. That's what they brag about. My kid got this job, my kid did this, my kid did that. That's what the bumper stickers say, right? You ever see a bumper sticker that said, my child is on fire for Christ? I have not. Maybe we should do some of those. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Maybe, maybe. (laughs) See, we want our kids to be successful 
Oh, my kids are doing all this stuff. Tell me about, are they, are they following the Lord? Yeah, well, you know, they're working on that. But man, the job they got, the job they landed, the school they got into. We want God, we want our kids to be successful. Are we willing, are we willing to give up our, are we willing to give our kids back to God? So when we first moved here uh, a long time ago, 89, back in 1989, we were introduced to a couple, um, Dave and Betty. They were a fantastic couple, and uh, they were from Oklahoma, so they were just cool, you know, to start with. They didn't even go to the Bible chapel. Someone introduced us to them. They had gone to the Bible chapel. They had gone to another church, and we came back, and man, they, they took us under their wing. We were at their house, and and uh, we, my, one of our cars was still back in Dallas, and so they had us borrow one of their cars, and we used that for a while. And uh, we, we, lo- we loved them, and uh, we appreciated them so much. They had three children and one girl named Jody. Uh, baby, she was our first babysitter uh, here in, uh, in Pittsburgh, and, and uh, Lori and I just fell in love with her, and she was over at our house a lot, and it was cool to see what God was doing in her life. And she was one of those... Uh, teenagers that was on fire for, for Christ. And um, she, she, when, they, when they came back to the church, um, there, there was a difference in our youth group because they were in it. It's not, it's not just the youth group leader. It's the kids in the youth group. And it was from the inside out. The fire was burning. And, and it was exciting to see them. Uh, Dave uh, served as an elder here for a while. Then they moved away. They moved, uh, back, they moved to Texas. And uh, uh, Jody uh, went off and, and went to school. But while she was here, uh, we didn't do a lot of missions trips at that time for our kids. And, uh, and, and Jody and another kid named Lance wanted to take a mission trip. And they wanted to go to Albania, and it was for an extended time during the summer. And I will never forget Betty uh, coming over uh, to my office. And she said, you know, Ron, I, we have prayed, Dave and I have prayed for our kids for all these years that they would just do what God wanted them to do, that we would be willing to allow God to do with them what he wanted to do. But she said, this is tough. <laughs> I have been praying that prayer, but now it's real. And I do not want her to go to Albania for a good part of the summer. Well, she did. And uh, uh, it was an amazing trip, and they came back and told us all about it. So now the years go by, and Lori and I are in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We are visiting the church my sister attends. And uh, on that one Sunday, we were there. We looked across the lobby, and, uh, and there was a familiar face. It was, it was Jody and her husband visiting his, his parents. And we had a great reunion. And when we got back, she sent this email. James and I, she said, when I saw you in Tulsa, James and I had just sold our house and cars and all our stuff. And we were headed to training in Virginia and about to go to uh, a country that's high security. I won't mention the name. We were definitely doubting whether we could do this and if this really was what God wanted us to do. Seeing you all reminded of me how, how really, really how the Lord works, how the Lord used the Bible chapel to shape me and start a love for missions in me. I've always wanted to mail a letter to the Bible chapel and just to thank them. So I'll just share this in an email. The church had had such an impact on my life. I know I would not be serving in this area as uh, if, if it were not for you guys there. Thank you for the body for supporting high school mission trips. I remember when Lance and I went to Albania, 
that the church just wrapped their arms around us and loved us so much, and we were sent out as real missionaries. That summer changed my life and my walk with the Lord. Can't even find the words, but please know that listening to 15-year-olds share about their mission trips and experiences is not in vain. I felt like I was your all's missionary to Albania that summer. I'll never forget that time. It was there that the Lord placed in me a love for the lost around the world and really called me to serve. I didn't understand it, of course, at the time, but it's so often to look back and see how God led us. I just uh, exchanged some email with uh, Jody this week. They're here for furlough. They've been in the same spot for 12 years. They've seen some tremendous fruit. They've had some tremendous challenges. Jody said the first year was so hard, all she could do was write the word stay on her door. Because that's all that, that would be successful if she could just stay there. But that started with a parent being willing to allow their child to go. Are you willing to do that? It's radical obedience, isn't it? Sometimes radical obedience is just keeping your marriage together. It's not moving across the seas. It's just keeping your marriage together. That's radical. That's extreme. You got to do it. Sometimes radical obedience is dealing with this other God in our life. What is it? It's money, right? The average evangelical gives 3% of what God gives them Back to him. 3%. Now, if you just take tithe as a baseline for giving, for some people, just doing that would be radical obedience and would deal with the other God in your life. I don't say that so we can make our budget. I say that because Jesus says there's another God there. And sometimes being radical is just doing what Scripture says. I don't know what God has for you. I don't know what radical obedience He has for you. But I know this. He wants to see if you really back up what you talk about. You say you're a believer. You say you love Jesus. You say you follow Him. And sometimes God says, really? Let me test your obedience. One more thing. God tests us to see if we're willing to depend on Him for everything we need. You see, where we live, we don't really have to trust a lot. We have a group leaving on Thursday for the Mathari slums. They live day to day. And so at the end of that day, they've got to trust God for the next day. We don't have to worry about that. Right? We've got all kinds of stuff. Will we be able to trust God? That's what he calls us to do. Will we trust God? That's what Abraham did here. He's getting ready to kill his son. The angel says, don't touch him. Verse 13, Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket was a ram caught by the horns. He went over, and he took the ram, and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. A substitutionary sacrifice. That, that had happened before in Scripture, but here we see it, right? 
So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide, Yahweh Yireh. And to this day, it is said on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Do you believe in Yahweh Yireh that he's going to provide for you everything you need? It's easy to say Yahweh Yireh, isn't it? Do we really believe it? <clears throat> One historian wrote a book about Martin Luther, and he said that Martin Luther read this story, Genesis 22, in his family devotions one evening. And his daughter Katie looked at him and said, Dad, I don't believe the story. God would never have treated his son like that. Luther said, but Katie, he did treat his son like that. See, it was the Father who put His Son on the cross just for us. For Abraham, there was that ram caught in the thicket, right? But like Isaac, Jesus laid Himself down, and He became the perfect sacrifice. 1 Peter 1, for you know it was not with the perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Jesus surrendered himself to the Father. First Peter chapter 2, verses 22 to 24. He committed no sin, <clears throat> no deceit was in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he, in, he, what? he entrusted himself. To him who judges justly, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. Jesus trusted the Father to give him everything he needed. Matthew chapter 20, Jesus said to the disciples, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. We'll turn him over to the Gentiles. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be flogged. And he's going to be what? Crucified. But on the third day, God's going to raise him to life. Jesus trusted the Father. And since God has given us his very best, and since we see that trust in Jesus, Jesus surrendered himself to death. Since Jesus never doubted the Father, how do we respond to that? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, what then shall we say in response to all this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him freely give us everything we need? You believe that? God has given you Jesus for salvation, for eternity, for eternity. He can take care of everything else. Can you trust Him? Will you trust Him? 